Wonderful selection of hymns. I uh, have many favorites, but you led a bunch of them tonight, so thank you very much. Hope that uh, you were inspired, uh, you were helped by the lyrics of those wonderful hymns, by the prayers that were uttered, and by being together with your fellow Christians tonight. Good to be together. I'm very grateful for the chances that I have from time to time on Sunday nights to bring a, a lesson. Um, I have been trying to cut my lessons on Sunday nights shorter and shorter because of the wonderful blessing of uh, the children. And uh, I have not succeeded. Those of you that have been here know that I've gone over 6 o'clock every time. I didn't intend to, but I did. And uh, tonight, I intentionally did it shorter, and guess what? The children aren't here. The children aren't here. I miss them. (laughs) I miss them. So we'll see how well I do on that account. I bring you the greetings of... uh, the Wetumpka body, I was there Wednesday night. I missed being here for the beginning of the kickoff of our Wednesday night series. Uh, Matt is such a wonderful student of the Bible and, uh, and a speaker, and I am sure that you were enriched by it. And I think Brother Sipper is coming Wednesday night. Is that correct? Uh, Webster, I'm sorry. I was one, one short. Coming up is Sipper. Coming up uh, from uh, Birmingham, congregation up there is Brother Webster, so... Uh, anyway, come bring someone. Um, we're studying out of the book of Acts. Um, I have to admit I'll be gone. A small congregation down in Elba, uh, Alabama. I don't think that's very far, right? About half an hour, but uh, I'm going to be there on Wednesday night. But one of the wonderful things about the summer series is that we get to play uh, musical chairs. Um, that is, we get to visit uh, various congregations and uh, I've been told there are a bunch in Alabama, and I am going to find out a couple, two or three more this summer that I've never been to. Anyway, uh, it's great, great to be able to do that. I will miss being with you. I've had King David on my mind. There's a reason. Uh, last Friday, not this past one, the one before, I heard a paper of a colleague of mine on a text from Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. Just as a reference, chapter 11 is the David and Bathsheba thing. And chapter 12 is when the prophet comes and lets David have it uh, on behalf of God. Punishment awaits. I guess you could summarize chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. He brought an interesting uh, reading of that uh, text. I'm not going to share it tonight, but it has had me thinking about King David. And so tonight, uh, the lesson is from two texts, one by King David and one by Paul, because I've had Paul on my mind, too, this past week. Um, I'm teaching an online course. That's a strange kind of thing. You don't have the people right there in front of you. You're doing it through technology, and you have to still try to convey um, uh, that it's not just a text that we're studying, but it's, uh, it's an inspired text. And Boy, it's hard to do that through technology and through recordings, but uh, I'm doing the best that I can with uh, uh, the audience that I have. King David and Paul, tonight, in uh, the brief moments that we have uh, put together tonight to come back together and sing and study uh, Psalm 103, only the first five verses, and then about 12 verses from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. You're probably quite aware of the Ephesians chapter, um, maybe a little less with the Psalms, but uh, let's start with that. King David, 
It is uh, my understanding that uh, the one that you're about to read, the only the first part of it, you can read tonight, maybe in your private reading, the rest of it. We're only going to do the first five verses, that it was probably written towards the end of his life, when he was old. At least that's my understanding from uh, the text. King David. We think of him as the man after God's own heart, and he, and he was, and he goes down into history as such. But... but uh, but we do remember that uh, it, it started as a, a lowly shepherd with uh, his older brothers, you could say, in the army and doing things that were on the public scene while he was just tending sheep and no more than that. But God had a different call for him, a different thing in mind. You see, the first king of Israel by the name of Saul uh, progressively lost his way and started uh, forgetting to listen to God and then to dial up God and ask him what his opinion about things were. And so the story of Saul goes tragically wrong. And that's one of the things we forget. I guess we remember mostly about David that he, he of course, defeated the giant, the, the Goliath syndrome, a real event. And it was because of his trust in God. If God is on your side, you don't need five stones, you only need one. And you don't need the armor of King Saul. It's too big for you anyway. The story of how a small congregation or a small, theoretically a small person can do great things when God is on his side. That's, that's the lesson there. And you think in those terms, wow, from a shepherd boy to what will become the, the high point of Jewish history. I mean, when you ask the Jews today, what was the, what was the climax of your, of your history? They would say it was, it was 3,000 years ago. It's called the Star of David. And Jerusalem is the, the city of David. And the tomb of David is just down the street. Whether his remains are in that mausoleum or not, still they point down the street and say that's where it's at. It's right there. King David started humbly with not great expectations. Definitely from his father, maybe. Definitely from anybody else. He wasn't tall and handsome like like the rest of his brothers and worthy of the army, he was just a young boy. But we do remember that he had low points, right? And the lesson this morning of Doug taught us about hope and how you build it up and keep it and you live off of it because difficult moments might come. Like what? Well, like when King Saul turns on David. You do remember that, right? When the one whom he serves faithfully and never betrays gets envious of him and turns on him and tries to kill him repeatedly. We do remember that part of David's life, right? Before he was rich and king, we do remember the part where he had to run for his life, betrayed by the very one that was supposed to be the king of Israel and the one who he faithfully served, and yet, and yet he tries to kill him repeatedly. We do remember that part of David's life, right? I tend to forget it. The Bathsheba incident maybe is less likely to be forgotten, but it is, it is a tragic moment. It's a, it's a sad mistake of that real individual who will, in the progress of his faith and his life, become the man after God's own heart. But still, still, we do remember. We do remember Psalm 51 when Nathan comes. If we have time today, we'd read it. The depths of despair that he's at when he gets... Well, his secret is revealed. He did send a man to his death intentionally so he'd cover up adultery. He did do that. 
He did send a man to his own death. He did commit adultery. That is in his record too. And the sorrow out of the the, the words in the pages of, of Psalm 51, which is not the text of tonight. But do we remember another one too? Absalom, Absalom, does that bring anything? He had other sons. We do remember that the child by Bathsheba died. And he, for a week, stayed with his uh, countenance, not kingly at all, in utter loss and desperation, not eating, not answering anybody's questions as that child died. And that was the will of God. But he had other children, and Absalom, handsome and good-looking and loved by the people, especially in the city that had been the kingly city, Hebron, And then you know the story of Absalom, don't you, that turns on his father and gets the the favor of the people and, and rapes the wives of his father. And then David has to flee from his own son. He has to run. We do remember that part, right? I am trying to make sure that before we read the words of this man, we remember the highs and the lows and One of the lows is when, after a terrible defeat of the forces that Absalom put together to defeat his own father, he is running on top of his donkey and his long, beautiful hair, mane, that he's famous for, and his handsome, good-looking self gets hung in a tree, and then, thinking that they're doing a favor to David, the men of David running through repeatedly. And the news gets back to a father that your son has been killed in that way. We do remember that part, right? Because that's part of the life of the man of God called David as well. Well, tonight's lesson is about divine benefits. And I want to read from one of the many hymns, songs, poems that that man, King David, wrote. You see, he was a man of war with a lot of blood on his hands. But he was also a man of faith and a man who wrote a lot. And there are many things. The book of Psalms is truly a majestic piece of literature. I don't turn to it often enough. In this particular audience, I've gone to it twice. I looked back on my records and I saw that we had shared together Psalm 46 and Psalm 26. But uh, here's another one. It's my third um, stop in the Old Testament book that's made of poetry. Poetry is foreign to us. We like prose, but if this is poetry, in translation in English, it is uh, uh, not as good as it would be if you and I could understand the original, but we can't, so we do the best that we can. Some of the Psalms, which is the hymn book of the Jews, some Psalms celebrate, remember, the history of the nation of Israel, which is made of highs and lows, kind of like the story of David. Some psalms point ahead to the future, are messianic. That is, they say there's a time coming and he's going to be a descendant of David, by the way, who's going to uh, reveal and fulfill the plan of God that has been in the bosom of God for all the centuries, all the history of mankind since the Garden of Eden, and it's going to play out. And that's contained in some of the psalms as well. 150 of them. 
But 73 of them have superscriptions. They are sent down to us by the rabbinic uh, writers, those who put together this in the 6th century before Christ. And they say, these are by David. And some of them we even know the context, like Psalm 51. It was written when he got the blistering news, God knows what you did, and now everybody else knows what you did with Bathsheba. And he pours his heart out in utter sorrow. Psalm 51. Well... Some psalms are not despair, they are bursts of praise. And that's the kind I've chosen tonight. So that you and I can be encouraged. And the theme that will tie in the Old Testament verses of David with those of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 is divine benefits. And that sounds like a human resource topic, but it's not. We think in terms of, okay, I got a new job, what are my benefits? Well... You're in Christ. You are a child of God. You are uh, in the kingdom of heaven. What are your benefits? Nothing new that you will discover tonight, but uh, a reminder of that which you and I should know. Psalm 103 is said by some to be the highest peak of David as he exalts God for the things that he has done for him, the things that he has given him. There are five that I'm going to extract out of the five verses, but you could go on in in this uh, beautiful poem and continue to extract more of them. But I'm going to ask you to think in 20 minutes that we have, what benefits do I have for being in Christ? What benefits do I have for being a child of God? What benefits do I have to try in trying to be a woman after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. Psalm 103, here we go. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I don't want to go any further because we go too fast. When we read God's word, it's different. Now the words of men, we need to slow down. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I don't know how you do it, but there are many times when I come to worship that I have to tell myself, especially in the transition between announcements and now we're starting our worship. You have to come with intent to worship. And then you have to intentionally call upon yourself, all of yourself, to Worship God. You can do it. I can do it. Do we do it? Maybe not always. But we can and we should. And that's what David is doing. If you were to read the whole poem, what you would find is that at the beginning of the poem, this first verse you first read, he is saying to himself, pay attention, David, everything that you have and are, your emotions, your thoughts, your passions, everything, Pay attention and bless the Lord. At the end of the poem, what he will do is turn to all the stars and the moon and all of God's creation, to the, to the mountains and the rivers, and say, and you too, bless the Lord. So he does it at the beginning and the ending of, of the poem. He calls upon a blessing of the Lord. Can you do that? Will you do that? With David, as he starts out. There are many other moments in Scripture. David's not unique in that, but he is doing it as we should. 
and he's calling on himself. He's speaking to himself, to his own soul. All that is within you, bless the Lord. Give thanks. Consider the benefits that God has given you, the things that he's given you. Look at the Apostle Paul. He breaks into praise time to time. There are wonderful bursts of praise, like in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. The book of Ephesians is six chapters long, and in the middle you will find an interspersed in the letters of Paul, these sudden bursts of praise. He's not just a man of intellect. He's also a man of passion and of heart. And so he says, Now to him who is able to do, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is Paul bursting into a moment of praise. Then he goes on in chapter 4 talking about practical applications of living a life in Christ. But right now he's stopping to say, soul, give thanks to God. The prophet Isaiah, about eight centuries before Paul, will break in as he gets his own theophany appearance of God. He will break into these words. Maybe you recognize them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, an example of what people who realize who they've called to be with them, who they're in front of, who they've called upon in prayer and song. If you realize who you're talking to, then it's natural to break into praise and to holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there's several scenes in the heavens, windows into the the, the host of angels that are faithful to God and, and, and give him praise. And here's one of those. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes and around and within and day in and day out. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is Come. The Shema, we are in the books of the Torah, of the first five books of the uh, Old Testament now, and Moses is talking to the children of Israel, and uh, he is giving them instructions about how they should live out as he has brought down from the mountains uh, the Ten Commandments and the 613 other case laws, so to speak. And then to summarize it all, he says, You, you, and the Jews will say this is the summary of it all, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And 15 centuries later, Jesus will quote this one anytime he's asked, What's the summary of the law? He will say, that's it right there. That is, again, an acknowledgement of what you and I need to do when we realize whose we are and who we've called upon when we pray and when we sing. Here is the passage from one of the Gospels, Mark chapter 12. When asked by the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus says, likewise, the most important is the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Again, 
You could add on to that list whatever components you see as being you, the person. They put four of them together there. The mind, the heart, the soul, the strength. All of you needs to be involved in recognizing the benefits that you have in being God. So we are back to Psalm 103. 103, the psalm begins, this climax of David and all of his poetic writing, with David straining with everything that is within him to express his feelings. His feelings, yes, that too must be brought in. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Can I train myself, learn to let myself be overwhelmed by the blessings that are mine because God loves me, cares for me? sent his son to die for me. Can I do that day in and day out? Can I do that each time I come together with my brothers and sisters in Christ to worship or when I'm just in my closet to pray? Can I do that? Can I find myself overwhelmed by the blessings that are mine, divine blessings? Here is a quick list that he makes. The scripture tells us all the time that we need to remember. The children of Israel, the biggest problem was they would forget. We are no better, tragically, than they are sometimes when we forget the blessings that are ours, when we take them for granted. David calls on himself, first of all, but he then, by inspiration, calls you and me, living 3,000 years later, to remember to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits, says verse 2. You need to break into praise for your God because of the benefits. When you consider the benefits that are his, and he begins the list, and the first one's in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who forgives all your iniquity. Well, we know a lot of the iniquities of David. We don't know them all. We know some big ones. Uh, starting with Bathsheba. My, my colleague suggested that one of the readings that you can make of Second Samuel chapter 12 is that the baby, whose name we don't know, dies in the place of David. And although I can't prove that, it's an interesting thing. For seven days, the baby Sin will have its price. Sin must have a price. Somebody's got to pay. Is it possible, and I'm not sure the text can prove it, that David could have given his life up, but he didn't have the courage to do it. And so the baby died. I don't know that the text tells us that for sure, but that's what, if you read Second Samuel chapter 12, you'll see that David acts strange there. But I want to make sure that that suggestion that I've made to you is not the only thing you remember. Here's, here's a more important thing. David will absolutely mourn when his son Absalom dies, his son who betrayed him, tried to kill him, he will be in the utter despair. You see, 
if that's true about the young baby whose name we don't know. He has learned a valuable lesson years later when his son Absalom, who betrayed him and tried to kill him and take his kingdom and raped his wives, he will absolutely be the depths of despair at that point. You see, he's learned. What sins, what sins are secret to you? To you and God, of course. David says, one of the benefits that there is, is that he forgives all of our iniquities. He forgives all of our iniquities. The term all is important to David. Is it important to you? All. All of them. He says, don't ever question the beneficence, the goodness of God in forgiving your sins. Of course, forgiveness is not unconditional. And David has learned that too. Repentance and confessing your sin is part of it. But God will forgive all your sins. That is, if by itself, the reason to be a child of God, the reason to give your life for Christ, if you're not in Christ tonight, you don't want to carry those sins, not any of them, not one of them, not the worst of them. You don't want to carry them. You don't want to. He says, he forgives all your iniquity. Bless him for that. Bless him for that. The God of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac is a God of forgiveness. Number two, he's a God of healing. Verse three also says, who heals all your diseases. Let me make sure you understand how not to read this statement. It does not mean that the children of God are always kept and healed in their diseases. It does not mean this promise will not keep us from a disease or death. This is not a promise that we always tap into the divine power with miraculous healing. That didn't happen in the first century when Jesus healed. It doesn't happen in ours and it doesn't happen in the time of David either. Some look at it from a grammatical point of view and that's less interesting to us but this could be a Hebrew what's called parallel construction. And so it could mean that it couples pardon from iniquity with healing from not physical diseases, but the disease of sin. It could be that the Hebrew poem actually is saying that. It's tying the two together. But look at point C. I come back to, he's talking about maybe physical diseases here. This is, if it's talking about physical diseases, a statement of God's amazing design for the human body. Have you... Given thanks lately for a scratch, a, a, a sprained ankle, or a hurt that you knew would heal because God created a body that heals itself? There are two of us that had sprained ankles for the last couple of weeks, right? I've got one and it's taken six weeks. Did I thank God along the way for the fact that a body heals itself? I could walk again and actually run? Maybe I should. Maybe I should. We take it for granted. We take it for granted. Hmm. Heals all your diseases. He's the God of many benefits. Forgiveness is a first one. Healing is a second one. But he's also the God of redemption. 
who redeems your life from the pit. Redeems your life from the pit. The pit is a reference to death, no doubt. So we do not need to be fearful of death. Redeem is a term that uh, uh, meant to the Hebrew context, uh, the context of a kinsman or a clansman who would buy back a member of the clan that had fallen into captivity or into slavery and they would buy him back and so God buys you back keep that in mind for the uh, Ephesians 1 uh, verse that we're going to turn to in just a second Christ is our kinsman and he redeems us from the guilt of sin and he redeems us from death so that yes physical death is going to come to me and to you unless Christ returns before then, but I do not need to be in fear of it at all because he has redeemed me and you from from death. He is the God of that benefit too. But he's the God of another benefit that may seem more poetic to us. We are worthy of being crowned. The verse says, verse 4, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. It uses this poetic image of like a king or a victor being crowned. It's kind of a, a metaphor. That's a literary term for the qualities of God's nature. Uh, love and mercy are what he bestows upon you and I because we are children of his. He gives us what is the best that he has to give as our God. He crowns us with these two things. By the way, his kindness is revealed all the way throughout the Old Testament and the New, from the book of Psalms, chapter 19, to the book of Acts, chapter 17, when Paul is on Mars Hill. And then in one of the final letters of Paul in Titus, he mentions that again, the kindness of God and the way that he has taken care of us. We have already a crown on our head, but that crown will be uh, permanently placed upon our heads, so to speak, when the Son of God returns and we are ushered into the final phase of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, That is when we will be crowned. A last one in 103, Psalm 103. He's a God of satisfaction. This is another benefit that's mentioned. Verse 5 who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is a poetic image, and I I like this. Uh, I'm not as fast as I used to be. How about you? I never was that fast, but I was better than now. You see, the years and older age are catching up. It says I'm going to fly like an eagle. Does it say that? Well, that's not a promise that I could still run like I used to. But still, um, there is, in the old age of King David, as he writes this, a promise that old age still brings with it the promises of God who will allow you to look back on your life and satisfies you with good. And even though... It doesn't say you can play like you used to and run like you used to and work out like you used to physically, but you will look back from your old age on your youth and you will be happy and it will be good and you will be glad. I had several examples I was going to use to say, don't take this world this worldview for granted. Um, Matthew Arnold is a poet from the 19th century. Um, 
I'm going to read a poem of his. You'll have to listen because it's not on the screen. Um, he was a Victorian poet, one of the three great giants, um, with Robert Browning and Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, I'm not a Victorian poetry specialist, but I found it to be interesting how a man that doesn't have David's view, David's writing as an old man and saying one of the benefits is also that when you're an old man, you can look back and it will be good if you have tried to live out your life with God as the designer and the perfecter and the savior of your life. Listen to the poem of Matthew Arnold. He uh, uh, was a, a... uh, a bureaucrat of the school system of England and also a poet laureate. And uh, this is what he says about growing old. What is it to, to grow old? Is it to lose the glory of the form, the luster of the eye? Is it for beauty to forego her wreath? Yes, but not for this one alone. Is it to feel our strength, not our bloom only, but our strength decay? Is it to feel each limb grow stiffer, each function less exact, each nerve more weakly strung? Yes, this and more, but not. Ah, tis not what in youth we dreamed twould be. Tis not to have our life mellowed and softened as with the sunset glow a golden day's decline. Tis not to see the world as from a height with rapt prophetic eyes and heart profoundly stirred and weep and feel the fullness of the past, the years that are no more. It is to spend long days and not once feel that you were ever young. It is to add immured in the hot prison of the present month to month with weary pain. It is to suffer this and feel but half and feebly what we feel deep in our hidden heart festers the dull remembrance of a change, but no emotion, none. And here's the last part of the poem. It is last stage of all when we are frozen up within and quite the phantom of ourselves to hear the world applaud the hollow ghost which blamed the living man. Oh my, what a downer. Wow. You know, I think I'd rather read Psalm 103. Because David can say, even from old age, that one of the benefits is that in your old age you can look back and you can feel like an eagle. You can't literally fly like an eagle anymore. But you can feel that way as you look back on the days of your youth. It's one of the benefits The exalted and thrilling view of age that is expressed by David is far better. Well, I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to save Ephesians 1 for another day. Psalm 103 was good enough. Do you realize your benefits in Christ? Do you realize them? They're amazing. David tries to tell you, when you start that list... You're going to write a poem too. You're going to break into praise. We have a hymn that's been selected. You don't have it before you, but I'm going to read you the invitation song's uh, chorus. You need to uh, intentionally make the words your own. And it says this, I'll exchange my cross for a starry crown where the gates swing outward never. At his feet I'll lay every burden down and with Jesus reign forever. If you're in Christ tonight, sing this song with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. 
Because you have the hope, indeed the promise, that of that home in heaven. Claim it as yours. Sing it with all you got. If you're not in Christ, you need that hope. You can only get it with Christ. And you've got tonight. Would you come as we stand in?